You're listening to the Swick Technologies Leading Business Podcast. This is episode three featuring guest Jeff Lewis with SVA Consulting. This episode was recorded on July 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Eric Clark, and thanks for tuning in. I love getting up in the morning. I clap my hands and say, this is going to be a great day. Swick Technologies presents the Leading Business Podcast, helping you leverage technology to accelerate your growth. The key to this business is personal relationships. Before we get into the show and bring our guest on, we'd like to go ahead and get into the engineered minute. Microsoft recently announced the preview launch of Azure Dedicated Host, a new cloud service that will allow you to run your virtual machines on single-tenant physical services. That means you're not sharing any resources on that server with anybody else, and you'll get full control over everything that's running on that machine. Previously, Azure already offered isolated virtual machine sizes for two very large virtual machine types. Those are still available, but their use cases are comparably limited to these new hosts. Azure Dedicated Host will support Windows, Linux, and SQL Server virtual machines, and pricing is per host, independent of the number of virtual machines you end up running on them. You can currently opt for machines with up to 48 physical cores. As Microsoft notes, these new dedicated hosts can help companies reach their compliance requirements for physical security, data integrity, and monitoring. The dedicated hosts still share the same underlying infrastructure as any other host in the Azure data centers, but users have full control over any maintenance window that could impact their servers. Okay, so today on the the SWIC Tech podcast, we have with us guest Jeff Lewis with SVA Consulting, a data solutions development manager over there. Jeff, thanks for taking time out of your busy day to guest on the show. Oh, Eric, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to talk with you. You had given a, a presentation at an event in Milwaukee. Um, I thought it was really great uh, and eloquently done. And so as a great speaker, I thought it'd be a, a good idea to invite you in, to the to the podcast to talk more about um, <laughs> your profession, what you do, what SVA does, and then we'll get into our topic, which will be uh, Abs- satellite. Absolutely. I think it's the first time I've heard a great speaker next to my name. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the lineup was good. I think you stood out though. So um that's that's a I think that's a big deal. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so um, I'll let yeah, you unpack a little bit. Go ahead. Uh, tell us who SVA Consulting is and what you guys do over there. Yeah. So um, so SVA Consulting, uh, Subi Von Hayden and Associates is what that stands for. Um, we we're actually the the company at large. Uh, yeah, has different uh, discipline areas like accounting and uh, wealth management and. Uh, you know, business development, and then, you know, I, I work in the consulting area. Um, so we're a team of strategic technology solutions consultants um, based out of Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, I work in the Brookfield office. You know, we, we kind of refer to it as the Milwaukee office. Um, we've got a team of folks here as well. Um, and, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves on being, you know, business people that understand technology. And, and what that means is, you know, we generally approach our clients and, and you know solutions as you know solving business problems first and not so much just technology for technology's sake. Um, you know we're, we're not a staff augmentation shop. We're a we're a consultancy. Um, so that's it, just to delineate that. Um, as far as disciplines go, uh, we you know I work directly in the uh, enterprise information management and BI space. Um, 
yeah, whatever they're calling it this week. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, digital transformation, right? Yeah, exactly. So just all things data generally and, you know, heavy focus in analytics and uh, business intelligence. Uh, we also have some custom application development folks. Uh, we have a discipline around uh, business application selection and implementation. Uh, so things like your ERPs, you know, we have a we have a practice that works with Acumatica, uh, which is a cloud-based ERP. Um, we've also worked with Dynamics and things like Salesforce, um, and then just overall, you know, IT business strategy. Uh, we, we have a management consulting practice as well, who helps you know C-level executives and managers, you know, determine their technology strategy and roll it out. Um, as far as clients go, you know, we, we we have a large presence here in the Midwest. We also have clients on the East Coast and West Coast. Uh, you know, spanning a number of verticals like manufacturing, uh, supply chain, retail. Uh, and then we have a specialized practice in bioops and life sciences. So think like, um, you know, startups with, you know, new medical devices coming to market, new drugs, uh, things like that. So that's just kind of in a nutshell what, what the firm does. Okay. Um, my role specifically, I'm the data solutions development manager for the team. So I, I kind of act as an architect and team lead for the uh, data solutions and BI practice. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm both client facing and we like to affectionately refer to as like a player coach. So, <laughs> uh, I, I, I split time between architecture and strategy and then also you know, getting my hands dirty. So, um, it's kind of fun I, to play on both sides of the fence, right? Like, oh yeah, totally. It's, you know, people have tried to steal that away from me for so long and I've, I've always clenched onto it just cause, uh, that's what I love to do. Um. Not, not as much as, you know, I, I'm probably not admittedly doing as much as I used to, but <laughs> still enough to kind of keep my head in the game and, you know, keep on learning and growing. So, yeah, and it evolved quickly, as I'm sure you're aware, you know. Oh, yeah. And so your experience, um, kind of when when did you get your start in some of this stuff? What's that story look like for you? Oh, um, it's actually. I guess I guess I've taken kind of a relatively common path. <laughs> um, I. I say that because I don't think a lot of folks, you know, come out of high school and they're like, oh, I want to work on databases and backends. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of times, like, you know, people approach software development from like, a, you know, I like video games or I like, you know, um, you know, Facebook or social media or something like, you know, whiz bang fancy. So my career started off, um, you know, I, I've been kind of a lifelong tinker. You know, I've I, I've always loved to program and to just I just fell in love with computers in general um, at a very young age. And, um, you know, in, in my free time as a teenager, I was building websites, you know, back in the late 90s and, you know, programming video games and like C and basic and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, when, when I got to college, I, I started getting internships you know, in the summers and that kind of like led me down a path of um, becoming a network administrator, um, you know, you know, maintaining a data center, you know, all those all those things that come with it. Um, so I, I studied computer science at James Madison University in Virginia, uh, came out of there and worked for, um, worked for a local commercial real estate firm for a while, uh, just doing network administration. And, you know, I had a great boss and he was a really good, um, guy to learn from and just a good guy all around. And, um, I quickly discovered though, that that wasn't really my passion. Sure. Um, so I, I, I'd always had a soft spot for like web development, um, you know, staying on kind of the cutting edge of that. So I made a push into that full time, um, you know, got got really good with JavaScript and, you know, ASP.NET and PHP and so on and so forth. Um, 
then I moved, I moved to the Midwest from Virginia, um, got a job with, uh, SC Johnson, the, you know, the company that makes Windex, Windex and Ziploc. And, yeah. You know, yeah. They're a big name. Household big, name. Yep. Yep. Big global firm down in, uh, headquartered down in Racine, Wisconsin. Um, I actually started working at the, in the public affairs department, uh, uh global communication, public affairs. And, um, I, I was kind of like, I, I affectionately refer to as their IT ninja. <laughs> So I was I was shadow IT for public nice. affairs for a while. Uh, I got to work on a lot of cool projects, got to travel a lot. And then um, I kind of, a, a spot opened up in their internal IT department. Um, and I had a, a friend in there that recommended me for the job and um, kind of the rest is history. But that team actually worked with sales and marketing. Um, it, it's something we'll actually touch on later in the discussion about like how how data lakes are kind of fit into this you know, ecosystem between the business and IT. Um, but we we were a group uh, in global information management that, you know, kind of, I, I don't want to say got carte blanche, but we were able to kind of operate without a lot of the same bureaucracy and control that the rest of IT had to work, uh, deal with. That's Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so we, we answered both to IT and to sales and marketing. And, you know, we, we got a lot of cool projects, you know, it was, you'd have a team like a target team come and, you know, they would, they would say, oh, we've got this opportunity here. We have two weeks to you know, crank out this concept. Can you help us? And we would you know, sit down with them and try to figure out the best way to do this with the data that's we the had fun, on it. Yeah, that's the fun stuff. Oh, exactly. And it's, it was a whole lot of point of sale data, uh, you know, big data sets from places like Walmart, Target, Kroger, um, you know, supply chain information, inventory information, um, even, even stuff like you know, the, uh, the uh, you know, shopper value cards you get at like your, your local grocery store. Um, you know, that, that cart data coming in. So you can start to build these data models around, you know, if somebody buys, you know, uh, cleaning spray X, you know, what other items have they bought? Can you correlate those things together? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Target, uh, I did a bit of reading on that subject matter and Target was one of the, maybe not first to market, but they certainly leveraged that mm-hmm. in major ways back in the day. I don't remember which podcast or book I had read that talked about it, but, you know, a dad had called into Target to yell at them because they had thought that his young daughter was pregnant because mm-hmm. of the recommendations in their coupon book, right? Back in the day before this was a big deal thing. And he called back to apologize because they were right. And so they predicted <laughs> she was pregnant before anyone else knew based on her shopping habits. Yeah, I think that, that's one of the most famous like <laughs> machine learning stories out there. And it's, it's, you know, it's completely plausible. <laughs> it's, it's a very easy pattern to follow, you know? Yeah. So. Anyway, so yeah, that's, that's the fun stuff. That's what I'm saying. Like, and the fact that you know how to turn those knobs and dials and do something with it actionable for sales and marketing teams from, from that perspective. And when you're doing that, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, so okay, kind of, if you had any other points to make there, go ahead. No, back to you. I was, I was just going to say, so, you know, it's always fun to ask people, you know, hearing where they've ended up, um, either how close to the mark or far from the mark is that from what you wanted to be as a kid growing up. I always find that to be a fascinating question. So um, that said, you know, what did you want to be when you were growing up? And, and you know, did that shape where you're at right now? <laughs> um, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a funny story. Like I, uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, like video games were kind of a gateway drug into, you know, technology and IT. Um, you know, so growing up, I just, I was just endlessly fascinated with computers and video games. And, you know, when I was you know, seven or eight years old, I asked my parents for a Nintendo for Christmas, you know, the original 8-bit Nintendo. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, being, being the, you know, Navy brat, I was the, you know, the, the Sega Master System, the competitor to Nintendo, which was nowhere near as popular, um, was on sale at the Navy Exchange. My parents, my parents bought that and said <laughs> the Nintendo. So 
you know, Christmas morning, I ran down and I opened this box, which I assume is a, an NES and it's a Sega. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Um, <laughs> but that kind of sparked like this, just, you know, I, I, I got past that real quick and just fell in love with the machine and, you know, became this lifelong Sega, you know, fanboy for, for lack of a better word. Well, that's interesting because um, as a kid, so when I'm, I had a Nintendo, but then eventually I did get a Sega, but you said Sega Master System, and I only knew of it as Sega Genesis. Are those yeah, two is, things different? Is, is that a whole different Genesis. podcast topic? <laughs> <laughs> this is the one before the Genesis, yeah. That was, oh, it was my gosh. The, uh, it, had a, it, had a, it had a nationwide release, but it was obviously like very much a second place player. So, you know, growing up, like all my friends had Nintendos, and it wasn't until my family moved to Virginia that... There was a kid on the block who also had one and we, we were like instantly best friends because we could finally trade games back and forth. So, well, that's um, <laughs> but you know, like, like, like a lot of kids back then, it's like, I just wanted to work for Sega. That's all I wanted to do. You know, like, like in second grade, it was like, what do you want to be? And it was like, I want to work for Sega. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Nope, just love the brand. Yeah. You're like, I'll do anything they tell that me to. Be, I'll get, I'll that could be a phone counselor. Could, yeah. yeah. Sales, it could be marketing. It could be programming. Who knows? But you know, as as I as I got older and you know more into technical topics in school, you know, it's quickly discovered that's probably not the best career path in the world. Um, <laughs> but it just kind of evolved into a desire to study computer science in general. So, um, so I, I guess I was lucky enough to kind of go into college knowing you know knowing what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, even even though that okay, oh, I was gonna say that's rare. Um, in a lot of cases, there's there's people that are 25 year old 25 years old. They still have no idea what they want to do. You know, it's um, it's cool to hear a story like that. And I hear this story with technology quite often. Yeah, that it, it catches you at an early age and people just follow that path that just pulls them right down the string into the into the industry. But the, I mean, the, but the problem is with computer science, it's like, you know, it's, just, it's such a broad field. It's like, yeah, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do computer science. I mean, I always joke. I still don't know what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would yep. have never guessed I would have wound up, you know, working on like data analytics but you know i kind of fell in love with that too so it's just an ever-evolving thing it sure is and it's getting more and more exciting right and so that, i guess that brings us to our topic of today's show which you know you kind of help shape which is just data lakes right um and you know going through the show notes together you know i think we've done a good job of taking what you had presented and at you know the the tech summit in milwaukee mm-hmm. um you know a path to explain that so maybe to start to unpack that from the get-go, um, maybe how would you describe, you know, what a data lake is for the layperson, and even not for the layperson? Like I understand technology through osmosis because I'm around it, but I actually <laughs> have no fundamental understanding of what's really happening. So um, it'd be really great to hear your your description of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so a, a data lake, it's it's kind of one of those scary new buzzwords, right? It's it's I, I'm very sensitive to technology buzzwords because. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can make a whole career out of just, you know, flinging buzzwords around, you know, how many times you could fit blockchain into a presentation or whatever. Um, <laughs> but uh, data, data lakes are a buzzword that I, I totally get behind the concept, and I think there's a lot of meat to it. Um, and I think it's definitely worth uh, looking into and, and considering for your for your business. Um, so what a data lake is at a high level, it's, it's really just a data repository. Um, it, it's an enterprise-wide data repository. Um, that contains raw data from from various sources. Think like you know, as, as as businesses evolve into the cloud and you know further into the 21st century, you know a lot of companies are starting to you know purchase SaaS applications like you know like like doing your you know concur for uh, time and expense entry, 
and Salesforce for CRM and, you know, all these off the shelf applications. Um, so one of the problems that companies are having right now is that, you know, there, there's just so many places where your data is living, you know, that isn't inside your walls. Okay. Um, so the idea of a data lake is like, you know, let's, let's get that information in and own it. Um, data ownership in my mind is the big story behind this one. Um, you know, you, you're, there, it's not to say that like Salesforce will disappear tomorrow, but you know, it's it's still peace of mind to have that to know that you own your data. You know, you have a pipeline into that coming into your business that you own. Um, it's I, I mentioned raw data. That means data stored in original, you know, unaltered, uh, immutable form. So you know, once you land that data, think of it like a ledger or transactional okay. data. Like yeah. you're you're going to want to keep that history. Um, and then when that data comes in, you're not you're not just going to slap some text files in a you know in a directory. You're going to want to you know tag it with metadata. You know you know where where did it come from? You know what's the checksum of the information inside of it? Um, you know versioning information, security information. You know just just adding attributes to these files so that you you can do intelligent things with them later. Um, and then you know the the way you structure all this is um, there, there's different like layers or zones. You know whatever you want to call it, but um, the, the, that raw layer is kind of that data at rest, you know, it comes in, it lands, you own it, it's in your data lake, that, that's the raw layer, it's in its original format. Um, and, and that includes relational data and, you know, like non-relational data, like, you know, it could be backup files or audio files or video files. Um, there's also kind of like a, like a loading dock speed layer, we call it, uh, okay. where, you know, you might have data streaming in, you might be like batching it up. You might have like a fast, you know, think like Twitter data coming in, you know, like, uh, like a fire hose. Seconds. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, so you, you may want to batch that up for a little bit and then plop it into your data lake, you know, once you've reached a certain, you know, megabyte size or once a certain amount of time has passed. Um, and then there's, there's a concept of like a curated layer. So, so downstream from your raw layer, you may want to take that data, you know, cleanse it, transform it, aggregate it, you know, shape it into a usable form and then, you know, put it downstream in a layer that can be consumed better by like a data warehouse or, you know, reporting or, you know, things of that nature. And then um, the, other, the other big piece besides data ownership, the, the real value of this is it decouples your data from your compute. Um, so, you know, in the past, I think a lot of folks have treated, you know, their, their relational data warehouse is kind of like their big data repository, but you're still marrying, you know, a computing platform and a data storage platform into one. Um, if you do it this way, you know, if if some, you know, whiz bang technology comes out down the road, maybe maybe you want to explore the use of that technology and also maintain your data warehouse and some other processes. You know, you can you've got this original source of data um, that you can you know plug those newer tools into and experiment or maybe that becomes part of your pipeline. That's interesting. Um, so something like 23andMe, for example, they're collecting data on, you know, the entire population. Right. And and what are they doing with that? I, I imagine at some point in the future, right, um, the ability to manipulate that data for just some end user becomes greater and greater and greater as it builds and builds and builds, and we do more and more and more with technology. Yep. Yeah, and 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 think like you know the the data warehouse example. You know if if we migrate from you know SQL Server to Redshift to something like Snowflake. Um, you know, we we may want to start over from scratch and just say we've got our, our we got we have our completely original data set with full history. You know, we can point that new tool at that original data set and then recreate all these things in this new tool. Um, that's kind of one of the powerful things about like a data lake uh, versus you know 
pre you know pre transforming your data before you land it. You're landing it and then transforming it. Sure, sure. And then it's really hard to point something new at it, right? Like you just said, versus keeping that original file or what have you, the original form of it. You can maybe exactly. point some other things at it to tell you different things about it. Yep. Okay, so that makes it's sense. All, it's all, yeah, it's all about structure and just, you know, at what points you do certain things. It's really, <laughs> it's kind of the simple answer, right? You know? Yeah, and there's obviously, you know, look, these are, there's, there's um, you know, layers of depth beyond this that that we could probably belabor this point in, in subject matter for days. <laughs> you know, rather than some short episode. So a lot of this is meant to be high level just to kind of explain some of it, but why the buzz, you know, like what makes it so exciting? Why is there all this buzz around it? What What do you think, you know, the, the business owners, the C-suite, the executive level folks think about when they hear this term? Are they scared? Are they excited? Are they indifferent? Are they confused? That's, that's an excellent question. I think, I think the basic concept kind of gets across, you know, like if you're if you're just reading like, you know, CIO magazine articles about it or, you know, Wired magazine articles. It's it's. um, How do I phrase this? You the 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 cliche thing you always hear with, you know, quote unquote, like big data is, you know, somebody will say, oh, it's the three V's, you know, velocity, veracity and variety is the, you know, the explosion in data sources. Um, I. I kind of cringe every time I see that in a PowerPoint because it's it's just the laziest answer in the world. So <laughs> I, I I kind of outline you know three areas that you know a data lake is trying to solve. Um, okay. And the uh, one one of the biggest ones, and I've I've got firsthand experience of this. You know I, I kind of related that story about the sales and marketing uh, team I worked with at my previous gig. Um, but you know business users, you know every day they're being challenged to you know do deeper and deeper and wider analysis of, you know, of their entire scope of their business. And, um, you know, data sources change so rapidly and schemas change and, you know, API, you know, if you're getting data from some source via an API, you know, they can, they can change at the drop of a hat. And if your processes are so rigid that it takes either, you know, a long amount of time to develop changes or plan them or, um, you know, to like, to just add, you know, add a column to a database table, you know, to, you know, to bring in this one new attribute from your, from your uh, SaaS tools. Uh, it's, it's been a problem, you know, historically. And, and a lot of big enterprises, you know, have, you know, they, they have checks and balances in their IT organization. And, you know, they have an, they have a work ingestion process and a work queue. And, you know, you adding, you know, status column X, you know, from your concur data to your data warehouse might fall into priority, you know, 20, you know, out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the, the business doesn't want to hear that, nor, and frankly, they really shouldn't have to. <laughs> um, they're just trying to do their job. So, yeah, um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, so the thing that Data Lake does, it's not going to magically solve, you know, all the world's problems and just make your data warehouse, you know, fully automated. But what it can do <clears throat> is, you know, it, it, as I mentioned previously, it can, it will get you that data, you know, so it's inside your walls first. Um, so that maybe, you know, hypothetically, if if your business analyst who's asking for this new column or, you know, this new piece of data, you know, just needs access to it to be able to research a few things like, you know, you can give them access to that raw area so that they can run their own analysis. You know, it, it might buy you, you, the IT organization, some time to, you know, to, to work that into your relational data warehouse, but also have this separate stream where they can experiment, you know, they, can, they can perform research and, you know, the, they, they might be being asked to build a report that's a one-time use for a week. Um, you know, and that's totally fine for them to go with the raw data if they know what they're looking at. 
um, you know, while you kind of build that into your traditional processes. So it gives you a little flexibility there. Um, take some of the burden off the, uh, you know, get it done now mentality. Yeah. Uh, the, the second point is, um, you know, anyone who's worked in a big enterprise or even, even frankly, a small enterprise, you know, departmental silos are a thing, right? Um, some places hoard their data <laughs> uh, for better or worse. Maybe they don't know how to get it out of their systems. Maybe they, you know, think it's a strategic advantage to like not letting, not letting them see it. Um, data lakes, you know, the, the spirit of them is kind of democratized that a little bit. So it doesn't mean that you have, um, you know, no controls and no security in place. That's certainly top of mind. You know, you're going to want to make sure you secure your PII um, and, and then any other, you know, sensitive information uh, to just the parties that need to know. <clears throat> but, um, you know, being able to place, you know, the, the bulk of your data in this data lake, you know, maybe, maybe sales, uh, you know, keep some things secure, but they can share like an aggregate or like an obfuscated view of their information. Um, so that, you know, the marketing department or maybe the, you know, procurement can like tap into that data if they want to experiment with it and see if they can, you know, blend their data together, you know, find new, new KPIs, new analytics to work with. Sure. Um, you know, the, the, the sales and marketing example is the classic one, you know, it's just, yep. they, there, there's a lot of interplay there between those two departments and, you know, the more you can share, the better. Um, and then, you know, the, the third point is, you know, the, the big game, one of the big game changers was simply just the cost of storing data and scaling it in the cloud. Um, so, you know, for example, like if you wanted to store a terabyte of data, you know, in Amazon simple storage service or S3, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's going to run you, I mean, just to store that data in like the top tier performance wise, it's going to cost you about, you know, 25 bucks a month. Um, you know, compare that to, you know, running a, running a server or running, you know, uh, you know, a giant like hypervisor with VMs and a storage array and maintaining a SAN, you know, it's, it, it becomes very attractive to, you know, to look at these cloud options for, for what's called object storage. A um, little, little bit different than file storage. So object, it's kind of an important point to bring up. So. No, thank um, you. That's good. I'm glad you're doing that. I, I have a yeah. very limited knowledge of it. So, you know, I, I yeah. hope that anyone else tuning into this and listening, you know, if they're, trying to learn something this is a good point yeah so um so things like amazon s3 and azure you know storage accounts and you know google's uh associate you know cloud storage they um they're they're object data stores and what that means is it's it's, it's kind of a fancy word for file in the cloud <laughs> uh they're they're not stored in what's referred to as like block storage. So if you if you have a server like a Windows or Linux server and you've got hard drives in that server or or SAN, you've got a block level store. And, and what that's really meant for is it's tuned for running an operating system, you know, for running a database, uh, you know, things of that nature. Um, an object store in the cloud is more it, it's it's kind of tuned and built around the idea that I'm just storing files out there. And they're not being used by the operating system, and or you know, as a as part of a database engine. Um, so they're they're priced they're priced differently. They have different performance aspects. Um, but generally, in the cloud, you know, storing the bulk of this data is, is very cheap, um, and the they essentially auto scale. So if I if I throw a file out there, and internally I have you know 30 processes trying to access that file, you don't really have to worry about contention that much. Because um, behind the scenes, you know, Amazon or Microsoft or Google will be, you know, taking care of all that for you. Um, you know, there's, and the, the other advantage to that too is you can scale up and down those services. I know both Microsoft and uh, Amazon both have different storage tiers. 
Yep. So if you have if you have data that's like coming in hot, you know, it's got to be processed quickly. It's or it's like a publicly accessible static file for a website. Um, you would put that on the standard tier, which is the high performance tier. Um, but over time, you know, as you process that data, if you you might mark it with metadata saying this has been processed or it's reached a certain retention period, um, you can relegate that data down to a lower tier that's maybe you know maybe not as fast to recover. Um, but more so, affordable, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, for yeah. example, uh, Amazon has a product called Glacier within S3 that brings that one terabyte cost down to about five dollars a month. Oh, that's um, that's good to know. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so the the companies that really architect their application and their retention policies and their data to take advantage of that, there's obviously a lot of cost savings involved with you know structuring it correctly. Um, yeah, it's yeah. not easy to do. If you just do it out of the box, you're you're likely going to end up paying probably more than you need to. Versus yeah, absolutely. kind of going down this path of like, hey, let's think about this. What are we trying to accomplish? What is it doing? What does it need to do? And at what point, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and, the, and the other story there with, with, you know, you might still say, well, I've, got, I've already got all the storage. You know, why do, we need, why do I need to do this? Um, you know, the beyond the scale and the, you know, how fast it can ramp up and down and you know, not having to worry about some of the back end stuff. Um, you know, you, you can enable things like cross-region replication, like automatically. So every time something hits my, you know, storage bucket, I can ship it out to, you know, Shanghai if I want to as a backup or to the West Coast. Um, so, you know, the part part of their SLA is, you know, storing your data multiple times. So that if, you know, there's one failure in a data center somewhere, um, you know, you, know you, you may not even see, you know, negative results from that. So Sure, sure. And so you kind of, you know, touched on a couple different platforms. It sounds like there's you know, some major players, AWS, Azure, which is Microsoft's product, and then Google Cloud, AWS being Amazon's product, um, which I think, you know, most consumers seem to know about because they do a good job of advertising to the public during the Super Bowl. But, um, you know, is that, those are probably the the big three, right? And maybe there's others on the on the mm-hmm. kind of fringes, but, um, you know, different, I would assume different, there's different things you can get from those various providers, right? Um, maybe one's better for a different reason than another, depending on what it is you're trying to accomplish. Um, yep. Maybe touch on some of the differences between the three, if if you can. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll give it a shot. It's it's less than you think. Um, there there certainly are differences. Um, a- AWS is uh, is is generally the market leader right now. If you're go if you're going by dollars and you know the you know the amount of users and applications that are deployed in it, um, they, they've been first to market with a lot of stuff. They've they've been very competitive on price, um, and uh, they they took a big swing early on at like the virtual machines market. So this this is one one of the interesting stories about the the formation of these big public cloud providers is, um you know to be as, from a developer perspective like Google was kind of first to market with some of these advanced concepts. So you know the the idea of like serverless, mm-hmm. um you know like running data completely in ser- in services that are managed for you and not actually spinning a server up. Um, you know, things like containerization and, and Kubernetes and uh, things like that. Like, you know, Google was really there first. Um, but a, a lot of analysts have argued that, you know, Microsoft and, and Amazon took the approach of, you know, let's let's target the enterprise market where the money is, um, you know, help them get into the cloud first. And then over time, they'll evolve into using some of those, you know, fancier technologies and the service based offerings. But they, you know, some of their first offerings were just virtual machines. <laughs> so, you know, hey, move move your application to the cloud. Easy. Uh, lift and shift. Nice. So so Microsoft and, and Amazon got a lot of traction early on with that. And 
frankly, in, in my opinion, that's why they're the market leaders right now. Um, so Azure, uh, Microsoft's offering is um, has really been growing in leaps and bounds in recent years. They had an excellent, they're coming off an excellent quarter uh, right now. Um, they're, they're still a second place player, but it's at this point, it's almost 1A and 1B with Amazon and Microsoft. They're, uh, they're kind of the 800 pound gorillas in the room. Sure. Um, yeah, and it's my understanding, and if I'm, I don't hope that I'm not wrong, but it's my understanding that that Microsoft Azure has quite a bit more to do on the on like the focus of business specifically, like the enterprise, right? But then also security and compliance. Um, you know, I, I know I'm sure Amazon has some things like that, but I know that they have a different thing that makes them a lot of money, right? And they have a different maybe focus as an organization. Yeah, and actually, uh, I mean, for, from a developer perspective too, like you know, Amazon is. Both all the platforms are quote unquote like developer agnostic or platform agnostic. Sure. Um, historically, Amazon has been more of a Java, uh, you know, centric uh, platform. Although it's it's not really a fair thing to say anymore because they, I mean, they they fully support .NET, you know, JavaScript, Java. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of pick your language and run with it for the most part. Uh, same with Azure, and and there's there's weird idiosyncrasies too. Like you know, Amazon was the first to support uh, PowerShell, and then Microsoft was the first to support like Bash scripting. So yeah, there, there's cer certain ones have popped up with features before the other. Yeah. Um, the the feature parity gap closes really quick with these with all these platforms. You know, generally if someone debuts a feature, you know, it's it's you can you can almost like do a tic tac or a, a bingo board to it. You know, there's like Microsoft is going to follow up Amazon with a feature that closely matches that within usually four to six months uh, and vice versa. So it's uh, there, there's quite a bit of future parity, especially with uh, this data lake concept that we're talking about. Um, but yeah, it, you know, Amazon is is heavily open source. Micro Azure is obviously heavy Windows based, um, but it's not to say that they don't support, you know, each supports the other platform as well. So sure. it's not like you're locked in. And a lot of companies too are taking a, a multi-cloud approach, um, they're, you know, some some enterprises have had hesitation with you know putting all their eggs in the Amazon basket, you know, when Amazon might be a competitor to them, you know, in the online. Yeah, sales. that makes sense. Yep. So you, you you see companies making decisions based on that or or hedging their bets and having you know certain applications deployed on one side and then certain ones deployed in the other. Um so that's definitely a thing. So from a data lake perspective, just kind of going through some of the, the framework of the notes that we have here. Um, how does that kind of fit into this? Yeah. So, um, so if you're looking at building a data lake from, you know, kind of from the ground up in one of these platforms, um, there, there, there's, there's a couple central components, right? There's, you've got your object storage, which is what we talked about, like the S3 and Amazon or the Azure storage accounts in Azure. Um, you've got data processing, which is, you know, that's a very general topic, but, um, <laughs> It's just just encompassing all the tools you would you would you know use to move data from point A to point B, transform it, etc. Um, you've also got things called data catalogs. So think like my my favorite example of this is always um, you know data data.gov, you know the government's open data initiative. Okay. Um, so if you go to that site, you know you've got <clears throat> you've got a searchable directory of just data sources. You know if I want to see like census data. Maybe I want to see like you know data from the Centers for Medicare Services or you know some government report. Um, if if they publish it, you know it's on there, and you like click on my census data, I might I might see like oh this you know this is maintained by so and so organization. You know the last time it was updated was this. You know here's some sample data. You know here's my endpoints that connect to it. Um, 
you know, et cetera, and some, some stats about it, you know, maybe folks like make a comment and say, hey, this is really useful for X, Y, Z. Um, that, that's kind of the data catalog. It's, it's just exactly what it says. You know, as, as data comes in, um, you're, you're going to have a, an application that's going to kind of parse that data out, you know, um, you know, run some stats on it, uh, you know, get information about the length, the number of records, what the, what the schema looks like, so the shape of the data. You, know, you might you might have like 12 columns today and 14 tomorrow, or maybe like a week from now that they take one out. Um, the data catalogs generally will keep track of that for you, so they'll hmm. you know they'll they'll kind of version that information for you, and you can build your data pipelines using that information to to you know kind of future proof yourself a little bit and kind of ease that ETL pain of having a rigid schema. Um, so those are the big components. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff like you know serverless functions and uh, you know, message buses and things we just won't get into today, but um, that that that's at its core, you know, what it's made up of. So as far as uh, the different platforms, so Amazon uh, covers those bases with, you know, S3, their object store. Uh, their data catalog product is called Glue. Um, and Glue is a little unique in that it's, it's a data catalog plus it's a processing engine uh, using Apache Spark, uh, which is a, a data processing language as part okay. of the the, the Apache Hadoop kind of family of uh, products. Um, there's also Athena, which is a product that they've released. And the the idea behind Athena and uh, Azure and Google both have the same concept is just, you know, people are used to writing SQL against like a database, right? Like an Oracle or a, you know, Postgres or Microsoft SQL Server. Um, there's also the concept of, you know, what's called schema, schema on read. Um, so, if you've ever worked with Hadoop or the Hadoop ecosystem, there was a product called Hive. And the idea was that, you know, you'd have all these files in your object store and maybe there's a folder full of, you know, uh, you know time and expense entry data output. Um, you know, so rather than load that into a database or like a relational database, you could actually run queries over top of those text files. Um, and then the, the engine Hive would actually go through and, you know, parse all that text and return you the data as if it were like a SQL database. Um, so it, it's kind of like a virtual database, if you will. Uh, okay. So, so Athena, Athena is Amazon's product for that. Um, there, there's not, there's costs involved. It's not some magic free bullet. <laughs> it's not, it's not a full replacement for, you know, still maintaining your data in a proper place, but it's, uh, it, it's useful if you want to query a large set of those text files in your data lake. Um, and then over, over to Azure. Um, so Azure, Azure has largely the same products. You'll find when you go between cloud providers, you'll find that they have the same concepts, but they might bundle them kind of differently. Um, so Azure has a product called Data Lake Store uh, that recently was um, uh, recently they they released a generation two of it. So they kind of took a first crack at it. I I, I don't think it, it it was you know selling like gangbusters. So they they came back and they they fixed a lot of the problems with the first gen product and they've they've released this new one. Uh, that sits on top of Azure Blob Storage, which is you know kind of like Azure's version of S3. Okay. Um, but Data Lake Store gives you some other benefits, like it it allows you to structure your data in kind of in like a folder structure. Um, it allows you to you know use tools like Azure Data Lake Analytics to do that same kind of schema on read, you know, querying against it with you know with, with familiar SQL, but you're querying on top of like raw text files. Hmm. Um, Azure is heavily invested in the company called Databricks. Um, so I mentioned earlier Apache Spark uh, as a processing, you know, engine. Uh, Databricks is actually 
was a startup founded by the one, one of the principal architects of, of, of Spark at Apache. Um, and they're, they've partnered with Microsoft um, to kind of release this platform that's, that's really meant for like data science, but also useful as a, as a ETL mechanism. Um, Microsoft's own platform called Azure Data Factory is, uh, if, if, if you're familiar with uh, Microsoft SQL Server integration services, kind of that visual you know, data pipeline building with, with okay. nodes and links, yep. um, Azure Data Factory kind of fulfills that need of like, you know, I've got data sources, I've got transformations, I might have like, you know, deriving some columns from computations and then putting it somewhere. That's, that's Azure, Azure Data Factory. Um, and then they have a product called Azure Data Catalog which does exactly what it says. <laughs> I'll, I'll, always, I'll always credit Microsoft well, for giving yeah. their products names that make sense. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> and then over, over to the Google side, um, Google has a great product called BigQuery, um, which is exactly what it says. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a, ver a very large um, you know, online data warehouse that you can run you know, SQL queries against. It scales to any size. Um, you, you essentially pay per query. Uh, based on you know, how much data is processed and read. Um, and then they have products like Dataproc, Dataflow, and Data Lab that kind of fulfill a lot of the same uh, roles that the, the Azure and you know, AWS uh, corresponding products do. So Sure. And you covered that really, really well. Thank you. It's clear you know what you're talking about. It's clear being, that you I'm have. But these companies, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we did a good job of being agnostic. I, I don't think we gave anybody any more credit than another one. <laughs> but different, different, you know, solutions have uh, different reasons to to try them out. Like, there's not one that's going to be. And you said some people have a multi-cloud strategy, right? And they're doing a little bit of both. It just kind of depends. Absolutely. So I guess this might be an obvious question, right? It just, but. Nonetheless, you know, there's some folks that still, you know, aren't sure about the cloud in general, right? They still want some things on premise. Some things still make sense to keep on premise for various reasons. Some people have concerns around security or just functionality and what you can actually do. You know, are there any benefits or and or cautions, you know, to moving to the cloud? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the, the the textbook things you'll keep hearing over and over are like agility, elasticity. Um, yeah, you know, scalability, yeah. like it's just all the brochure stuff you're going to hear. Um, you'll hear CapEx versus OpEx a lot. So, you know, moving your capital expenditures to operational expenditures. Um, I am, for full disclosure, I am not an accountant. <laughs> so, Good to go. Me neither. Far from yeah. it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, at, at a simple level, you know, why would you want, you know, what, why is OpEx potentially better than CapEx? I mean, the answer is it's not better in every case, but, you know, think about, you know, the, the, the cost of entry to you know building a solution you know you've if, if if you've built out your data center you know staff it rack it set it up power it you know et cetera et cetera you, know, you, you are dealing with a large upfront cost that's you know a capital expenditure and it's you know it has to be uh, amortized and depreciated you know there's there's accounting overhead to that you know, versus just getting a monthly bill for what you use. And having to, you know, completely wash your hands of it at that point, knowing everything's taken care of, right? Like some of the failovers and fail safes that they have and things like that, that, you know, the redundancy you'd have to pay to get that is. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's a lot. Some people really can't bite off and chew. Yeah, um, it's, you know, it, it's especially attractive for startup companies. Um, but I think I mean, for obvious reasons, right? You'd like, you know, we, we would rather, you know, fund you know, two years of AWS for a million dollars versus, you know, spend a million and a half to, you know, build internal infrastructure that will be obsolete in three years. 
yep. um, you know, you, you don't have to worry about those things if you go to the cloud. Um, that being said, it's certainly not, you know, a case where, you know, if, if you're an established enterprise with a data center investment, you know, I, I generally, you're, no one's going to recommend that you just jump ship and move to the cloud. Um, <laughs> it, it absolutely requires you to architect for the cloud. Um, it's, it's very important that you don't, you know, we, we've seen lift and shift operations where, you know, what, what that means is, you know, like if I've got an application running on a database server and I've got, you know, a load balancer, two web servers and, you know, some file storage, you know, lifting, lifting and shifting would be spinning up, you know, corresponding, you know, virtual machines and like AWS, for example, you know, and just shifting the application to run the cloud. Um, we, we've seen that successfully executed a million times. And, Sometimes that's kind of like an intermediary step uh, to getting into the cloud, but it's not it's not it's not going to be cheaper um, in almost every case. Um, now, what will be cheaper, though, is if you if if you get the application in the cloud, and you start working with your team to kind of refactor how it works to take advantage of some of those uh, those cloud services and take advantage of things like, you know, you may have a like a batch processing that runs at night, you know, or like or every six hours or whatever. Right. Maybe you're pulling in data from your ERP, you know, you're crunching it, you're, you know, doing some machine learning with it or something that requires heavy computation uh, that gets run, you know, sporadically throughout the day. Um, the, you know, the, the, pat the pattern for that in the cloud is versus having the server you know, up 24-7 and paying for it, um, you know, you would, you would have automated scripts that would, you know, spin a server up at a certain time or when an event occurs, you know, take its data in, do its processing, you know, produce a result and then spin down. Yeah. Um, so, so you're you're literally paying for the the time that you need it. You're not paying for any other time. Um, so yeah, all all the major providers have that tooling in place where you can automate those things. Um, so just just thinking about things a little bit differently. Um, a lot of folks too who you know complain the cloud's expensive. You know, you you also have to figure out holistically like what is a data center costing you, right? Right. Um, right. So. They're, they aren't free to power. They aren't free to cool and you know run AC on. Um, I mean, heck, my my home my I have a you know large home computer uh, that I keep on 24/7. I mean, that costs me $15 a month just in power alone. Um, you know, and and the, these rack mount servers are running you know three, four, ten times that power draw. Uh, you know, so not not all companies own their space. You know, so you may, you may be renting racks or having a co-location. You know, there's, there's insurance, there's, you know, the capital expenditure pieces. So there, there's a lot of hidden expenses that people don't always factor in. And Plus, one redundancy to the nth degree, like, you know. Yeah, exactly. Three giant generators or, you know, the security of the physical security, even of some of these buildings, right? To have man staff and, oh, yeah. you know, man traps and bio, you know, and like all of these different ways to even get into the facility. Um, in some cases, I think like some of the, the gov data centers have you know, rockets on them, right? Just, just in case. <laughs> So, you know, it's it's interesting. Yeah, the um, and you know the, the beyond beyond just the cost comparison, which is certainly top of mind with most businesses, the what what you really gain, you know, if if you if you push in that direction of saying like we're going to be more agile, we want to be more elastic, we want to be able to you know scale to demand easier. Um, that's that's one of the real advantages of the cloud and and these services is. You know, if, if I need a proof of concept, <clears throat> I can I can script it out, spin it up, run my proof of concept, and just destroy it. Um, yep. You know, I'm I'm only paying for a little bit of time. There's there's not a lot of overhead to getting that up and running. Um, you know, a, a really good example we had to test application or the application compatibility with 
uh, a business application in SQL 2017 uh, running on Microsoft uh, you know, Data Center OS, like the, the newest version. And we were able to spin that up, deploy it, evaluate it, and tear it down in two hours. Oh, wow. So, you know, that, that didn't require like a, procure, a procurement cycle. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't require like someone, you know, babysitting a server, like, you know, remoting into it, you know, just to like, you know, fire this thing up, spend the whole day configuring it and tear it down. It's, we, we had up, up and down and done in, you know, a very short amount of time. Um, so, yeah. That's cool. And you, we kind of go on to talk about, you know, maybe some, some wrap up things here as we kind of wind down. Um, but some ter a term that I, I, I think I only heard from you so far, um, data temperature. Mm -hmm. What is data temperature? What does that mean? Data temperature is um, actually it, if, if you go to like any of those tech conferences, like you know Amazon's reInvent, they've they've actually got a really good slide that kind of illustrates, you know, visually illustrates this concept. But um, so think of think of your data usage patterns, you know, and that could be for anything. But um, you know, if you've got an online application, like an online transactional processing application, like think of like a point of sale system, right? Like you know. Maybe Kohl's or Walmart, you know, they're going to have like a, a very, you know, hot data temperature area uh, in their, you know, in, in their data ecosystem um, where, you know, transactions are happening very quickly. There's a lot, there's a lot of writes, there's a lot of reads, there's a lot of updates, um, things of that nature. And, you know, you're, you're going to want that data, you know, living on the, the fastest, beefiest, you know, Got it. Low, low latency area. Um, which coincidentally is the most expensive, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, uh, you know, and, and then from there, you may have data that you access, you know, kind of ad hoc, maybe two, three, four times a day. Um, that can go on like a lower tier that maybe isn't as performant, or, or maybe the, the data is only stored in one location, so they're replicated in three places. Okay. Um, you know, that's that might be like a colder tier. And then, and then even further down from there, maybe maybe I've got this, you know, this process that loads, you know, streaming data from, uh, you know, every time someone saves something in, uh, you know, one of my SaaS applications, I've got like a, a data stream coming in to, to land that record in the data lake. Um, you may have a process that looks for that, you know, listens for that event and says, okay, I've got a new record here. I'm going to, I'm going to process it, you know, process it or pass it along to this other process. Um, you may then mark that, you know, that file in your data lake is, you know, processed by, you know, process XYZ on this date and time. And then you can have a policy that says that that periodically scans your your hot tier and says, okay, I see this has been processed, this is done, this is done. You know, I can now archive these records in, you know, like a like a much a lower archive tier. So um I, I mentioned earlier like Amazon Glacier, um, yep. which is, you know, it's like aptly named. <laughs> Large and slow moving. Um, but that, that's what it's built for is like you know, realistically, like throughout the day when you're processing your data or you're, or you're doing something with it downstream, you're probably not going to access it like, you know, constantly throughout the day. So it's perfectly reasonable to throw that in like a cheaper archive tier where if you need to access it again, it might take, you know, 30 minutes to an hour to retrieve it, but you may not care. So, um, you know, the cost of it. Forget it, come back, right? You don't need it at this moment. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's stored redundantly. Like you'll never lose it. It's, it's, you know, it's perfectly replicated where it needs to be and it's it's in it's an archive mode um but you can certainly bring it back up if you need to that's that's kind of that idea of like that temperature so um you, you want to optimize your 
you know, you, where, your, where your data is stored based on usage patterns is really what it boils down to. Makes sense. So, you know, as businesses start to consider these thoughts and some of the topics and theses that we've kind of covered, um, you know, there's no, there's definitely a, a, a real shortage of talent. The talent gap is another buzzword that we could all, you know, um, talk about for a long time. And I think we actually did an episode on talent gap uh, about a year ago. And, you know, what are some of the skill sets that someone ought to consider, whether you're looking to A, get into this field, uh, mm -hmm. B, hire for it, or C, you know, outsource for it? You know, what are some of the tools and skills or teams that you should be kind of looking at when you kind of look at this holistic picture of data lakes and cloud computing and things like that? Yeah. Um, so in the, the good news with this stuff is that <clears throat> a lot of the existing skill sets that, you know, your teams probably already have are, are very applicable to this. Um, you know, things like, uh, you know, just the SQL language in general, you know, be it whatever flavor or, you know, anti-compliant SQL. Um, SQL is still like the skill you want to have. Um, if, if somebody knows how to wrangle data, um, you know, picking up these other tools is, is not that difficult if you understand the concepts. Okay. Um, things like C Sharp and Java, you know, those object, those classic object oriented languages are still, you know, across, you know, each, uh, cloud platform are still very much like tier one, you know, languages, you, you know, you should, your team should know, or at least have someone who can execute on. Uh, JavaScript is still very prevalent. Um, you know, classic things like PowerShell, Bash scripting, just like OS level scripting is still very important. Um, a, a lot of the, we, we talked about automation a lot, like, you know, spinning mm -hmm. up and spinning down and, you know, doing a lot of these automation tasks. Um, they're, they're still largely powered by, you know, classic, you know, shell scripting. So, uh, those are still very much tier one skills to have. Um, some of the things that, you know, gen generally your team should start looking into. Um, some of that's some of the serverless, you know, quote unquote tech. I mean, you know, the the, the running gag is it's it's still a server. It's not your <laughs> server. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, things like um, you know, Azure has serverless functions. You know, Amazon has uh, a product called Lambda. But the idea is, you know, you write code to a specification around a framework and you just deploy the code. Um, so what happens then is like your codes, your your code might sit out in the cloud and it's only going to respond to events, you know, or a timer or be triggered by some process. Um, you're only you're not paying for a certain application server. You're only paying for when that code runs, um, you know, per execution based on the amount of RAM like you allocate to it, for instance. So um, I'll, the the prime use case for those types of tools are as kind of like the glue between your services. So if you've got if you think about like this data pipeline and you've got all these microservices, quote unquote, you know, running each stage of the data pipeline, you might use those those serverless bits of code as kind of the the glue that binds it all together. Um, not to be confused with AWS glue. Good yeah. <laughs> <Could> name <laughs> it. I wish they didn't name it like that, but yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And so, uh, and, and, and any, a couple other items too, though. But uh, yeah, a, a, the Apache Spark platform, um, as uh, you know, using it for ETL purposes um is, is becoming a big big player in that space um that and along with that goes uh python and scala uh languages uh so spark was built on scala but um has a heavy you know a, a heavy python uh support and you know a, a lot of users script their spark out in uh, python python's kind of become the swiss army knife language of the of the cloud data space for for better or worse so it's, that i've it's, heard of a lot and i know i know no languages you know i know um at some point in time i think i used to know php and html and css in the, the web field but 
beyond that, Python's one that I hear a lot of, you know, the the folks that are in our roof talk about from a DevOps perspective. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very useful language. It's uh it's it's actually fairly easy to pick up. Um if if you're familiar with you know, object-oriented programming or or really any kind of programming, it's you're, you're you'll be able to hop into a Python tutorial and and you know get up to speed pretty quick. Um, couple of really good books. There's an excellent book on Amazon you can get called the uh, uh, Learning Python the Hard Way. <laughs> <laughs> um, what what the author means by that is he's you know he, he's going to give you like you know a, a quick rundown of a topic and then have you go actually experiment with it. You know with that's with the best way to learn. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's an excellent book. Go pick it up. Um, he is also not paying me to say that. <laughs> so <laughs> hey, that's um, good. That's just, it's just an excellent book. So. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then um, kind of rounding out like uh, you, you mentioned like DevOps, you know, De DevOps is is more than a buzzword. You know, it's 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 an important skill to have in your team. It's an important team to form, you know, in your enterprise. Um, but having folks that are familiar with the, the monitoring aspects of this data pipeline and like you know making sure that you know if you if you get a bad file in, you know, what's the process for handling that? Um, you know, having a ticketing system, having uh, source control and and continuous integration. Um, you know, there, there's kind of a crawl, walk, run aspect to having like a, a full on like, you know, deployment pipeline and all, all these fancy buzzwords. But um, they're, they're important things to work toward. And, you know, kind of step one is making sure that your your code is in source control. Um, OK, so that, so that your team is aligned so that, you know, when you're building all the stuff out, you're not losing track of things and you've got like a record of what you built. So. That's great. I think you've covered the topic really, really well. Thank you. I'm not surprised because I've witnessed you do it once before. So it's um, it's really nice to be engaged in a dialogue uh, rather than just a, a presentation. So I really appreciate you taking time. How do people um, get in touch with you if you want them to and or how do they get to SVA? You know, what's some good ways for them to, to get in touch? Yeah, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, if you search for uh, you know, Jeffrey Lewis uh, from Milwaukee or SVA in there, I'm sure you'll find me. Um, <laughs> kind, of, kind of a common name. There actually was a group for uh, all the Jeff Lewis's on Facebook a couple of years ago. That's kind of funny. It, it was great. Um, there, there were 680 of us. Holy cow! <laughs> um, uh, I'm 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 admittedly not a huge Twitter user, but if you if you search around like the social media tools, uh, I usually use Jeff H Lewis as my you know my my at name. Um, if you want, and, and for my my firm SBA, um, if you just go to uh, consulting.sba.com. Oh, or just Google us, um, you'll you'll find our corporate presence. Um, but yeah, we always love to discuss this stuff, and you know, feel free to reach out if you have a question on this on this podcast or or any question in general. Yeah, thanks again for taking time out of your day. It's uh, really appreciated, and hopefully, we added some value for the for the listeners. Excellent, Eric. Thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. We're glad you were able to tune into today's show. Hopefully you gained some valuable knowledge uh, with our guest, Jeff Lewis, as we talked about data lakes. To kind of summarize the episode, we talked about a centralized data repository. Um, we organized that into a number of different layers or zones, speed, raw, and curated. And then uh, kind of discuss why there's buzz around that and uh, talked about that this buzzword has some actual meat to it. And so the cliche answer was, you know, three V's, as Jeff had noted, velocity, variety, and veracity. And so 
Additionally, we also kind of uncovered some of the major platforms, and it's no surprise who they are in this particular space, AWS uh, by Amazon, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud, and what some of those differences are between the three, and and maybe where some of those different uh, benefits and and pros and cons might lay with those three. Uh, But additionally, you know, the benefits and cons of just kind of going into the cloud in general, CapEx versus OpEx, elasticity and agility, some of the words on the pros column uh, versus on the con side, maybe some hidden expenses or re-architecting line of business applications and things of that nature. So just some gotchas to be paying attention to as you think about migrating and transitioning to the cloud. Um, you know, we also discussed data temperature, which is a topic that I thought was really kind of interesting. So, you know, we again hope that you did gain some value out of this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and taking time out of your busy day and schedule to listen to the Swick Tech podcast. Uh, if you have any comments or want to learn more, feel free to reach out. If you go to swicktech.com and go to our contact us page, we're happy to kind of answer any other questions you might have.